0: The following audio is from Life Center Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au Well, we are in a series uh, in a book called Second Timothy. So if you want to open that, we're going to be in chapter 1, verse 8 to 18 today. But before we get in this particular passage, um, I remember in 1989, uh, one of the mom- worst moments of my life. I was sitting in my classroom Um, you know, probably not listening to the teacher, but she was teaching. Principal comes in as a young guy in grade eight. Uh, I'm in year seven, a student who I knew uh, was there with the principal. Principal comes in, interrupts our class um, and then proceeds to ask for two more students from our class uh, to go with him. And I remember as he called those guys and they went out, I I looked at all three of them and I knew that I had, uh, I'd been caught, that I was, I was, I was gone. Um, Just that That week, I knew uh, I had sold stolen uh, adult magazine material uh, to these three boys, and I knew that they were going to throw me under the bus. And I freaked. I was completely paralyzed. Uh, I was paralyzed by fear of what was to come, and I was paralyzed by shame. Uh, I realized what what I'd done and what it would mean for my family, mean for my my parents. My parents were leading a church at that time, so they were in ministry. Um, And I just remember remember just being like, I was sick in my stomach, Um, I was paralyzed, and I didn't go home that night, I ran away. Um, I hopped in a bus, went to a friend's house named Jason Durham, uh, went to his back acre, stayed up in his cubby house, and he would bring me food throughout the night, and then eventually late at night, um, he kind of coughed up to his parents. They called my parents, and I had to face mum and dad with what I had done. The shame that I'd brought upon myself, the shame I'd brought upon them, uh, it it was hard to bear. And in this particular passage, uh, Timothy is feeling afraid and he is feeling ashamed. And we saw last week in Pastor Jimmy's passage, um, he says in verse 6, speaking to Timothy, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear. But of power, love, and self-control. In other words, Timothy, you're tempted towards fear right now, but that's not what God has given us. God has not given us a spirit of fear. And then here in verse uh, 8, it starts off saying, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. And so what we have is we have this young protege, Timothy, pastoring this church, but he is filled with fear of what is to come for him. His mentor, the Apostle Paul, is in jail. People are abandoning him. Uh, people are ashamed of him because his his ministry is not going well and not being successful, if you like. Uh, it's leading him to experience suffering and shame himself. And so he is being put into prison and he is put in shame. And so the Apostle Paul, Timothy's mentor, his father in the faith, nearing the end of his life, does not want Timothy to be filled with fear, does not want him to be gripped with shame. Why? Because these things paralyze us. And he does not want Timothy to be paralyzed. He wants Timothy to be mobilized. That This church must continue. This ministry must continue. The gospel must continue to advance. The mission of the church of Jesus Christ cannot stop. Timothy, do not be afraid. Do not be ashamed. Let's go, brother. And so I found lots of encouragement here as to the reasons and how Paul tells Timothy to not be ashamed. So I want to share three of them with you. Uh, the first is, what he wants to say is, not just don't be ashamed, that's kind of the negative. He wants to flip it and give him the positive. He, he's really saying to him, be confident in the gospel. That's number one. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me the prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel. And then he's going to give these sort of three aspects of what uh, the gospel brings you that gives you confidence in it, right? But I I want us just to think for a second about who's saying it. Again, the Apostle Paul, he's arrested. He's in a dark dungeon, jail, underground kind of thing. He's deprived of his liberties and freedoms. He has been treated as a criminal and lawbreaker. He's surrounded by Roman guards. He's been abandoned and deserted by friends, people who were with him in the faith, and now turning their back on him and are ashamed of him he is weary he is cold he is tired he is old and he is awaiting his sentence of death and rather than wallowing in discouragement he is filled with confidence in the power of the gospel he says that he is sure that he knows who his god is and that this god he knows has not abandoned him abandoned him in his time of suffering and he is using these last moments To encourage his young protege to not be ashamed, but to be confident, to be bold in the gospel. And so three times in this book, in this particular passage that we're in, 8 to 18, he says, do not be ashamed. The first one is to Timothy, don't be ashamed. Then he says about himself, I'm not ashamed. And then he uses the example of a man named Onesiphorus, a friend of his who's also not ashamed ashamed. Timothy, do not be ashamed of the message of the gospel. Do not be ashamed of the messenger of the gospel. Now in the 60s and 70s, Christians were shamed. We were uh, paid out, if you like, for believing that the gospel was the truth. However, in the 80s and 90s, uh, up to the 2000s, we became shamed or or paid out because we believed in any truth. We, We believed that there was objective truth. Now in this sort of 2000s and beyond this new millennia, really what we're experiencing now is not that we are shamed for believing that the gospel is true or that we believe that there is truth, but we're shamed because we don't believe in other people's truths. We don't believe in the cultural truths and therefore we are seen as being um, arrogant. We're seen as being intolerant and this can cause us to feel a sense of shame. We, We can kind of pull back because we're scared of what is going to happen to us when we share the gospel or when we talk about our faith because people may think that we are bigots. People may think that we are arrogant and intolerant in church. This message that Paul gives to Timothy is a message for us today because we all experience fear and shame at different times around the gospel. Do you struggle to tell people about your belief in the book? Do you... Struggle to invite people to church? Do you struggle to share the message of the gospel? We all struggle with that. And therefore, we all need to hear what Paul has to say as the the means to overcoming that. And Paul gives three things, particularly around the gospel, to help Timothy see the beauty of the gospel anew. He wants this this gospel refreshment, so to speak, to fuel his soul with boldness and confidence so that he will be a bold and confident man, not in of himself, but in the gospel. And so he gives him three things. Number one is that God's power sustains him. Right. So he says, But share in suffering, this is verse 8, for the gospel by the power of God. Suffering is not easy. Being called names isn't easy. Losing friends and family isn't easy. Having a reputation be smashed isn't easy. Uh, Getting accusations hurled at you is not easy. But Timothy, church, you are not alone in that. The power of God promises that he will sustain you in that. We do not suffer on our own. We do not endure in our own strength. But God will be with us and God will empower us. Paul's boldness arises not from self-confidence not from self-reliance and self-power and self-strength, but in gospel gospel, God confidence. So there is this power which sustains you, and then he goes on to say that there is this grace which saves you. So for me, it really stands out here if you read verse 9. there's He saved us, he called us, and then he gave us. So it says, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So one reason to not be ashamed of this gospel, but to be confident in it and bold in it, is to consider the lengths to which God has gone to save you. This is what he's saying. And look at how he says that this is not according to works, this is according to God's purpose and God's grace. We did nothing to earn God's love. We did nothing to earn God's forgiveness. We did nothing to earn God's favor. God graciously, in His own purpose, in His own mind, determined that He would give it to us. And this is good news. Because it means that we don't do good things in order to earn God's love and therefore lose it when we do bad things. That rather, God has chosen to do this for us And he calls us to come by his grace, and over time he helps us to not live for God's love, but live from God's love. Not to live for God's approval, but to live from his approval. And he says something really interesting here. He says uh, that Christ Jesus gave it to us before the ages began. In other words, this is something that began in eternity past. Before the ages began, in other words, it was before you were born. It's before you existed. This is the degree to which it is unmerited. You weren't even alive. You didn't even exist, so you couldn't have had. You couldn't have done anything bad to lose it, nor anything good to earn it. And then he goes on in verse ten and says, "Which has now been manifest through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus." So what's he saying? He's saying God. So God is saving you and calling you and extending His grace to you. God doing this began in the eternity past when He determined that that is what He would do for you. And it became real in real time when Jesus came and fulfilled the needed means to accomplish it. Now, whenever we start talking about things of God's sovereignty and salvation, uh, whether it's words like election, predestination, before the ages began... We can often get super caught up into it. Um, we, we find it hard to understand, and rightly so, because we are timely beings trying to understand how a timeless God interacts in time. And so often it leads to a whole lot of confusion, a whole lot of questions. Um, and I, I, don't want, I don't want to say don't explore those. I think, I think that's fine. Do that. But what, what I do want to encourage you is is that this is all throughout this book. It's over and over and over again said time and time again and the, the most common context to which it is said is in order to reaffirm and reestablish that this is a grace thing not an earned thing and it wants to provide assurance for those who may doubt because often when we are not doing well we doubt that god loves us when we're not doing well when we are filled with fear we're filled with shame paul reminds timothy This is something that God started before you existed, before the ages began, and He is going to bring it to completion at the end of all things. The Bible tells us that Jesus, God, is the author and finisher of our faith. It is to bring us assurance. So, in other words, salvation is not based on being good within time, but based on God's purpose outside of time, which He brings about in real time, through Jesus. Let me say that again. Salvation is not about being good within time, but based on God's purposes outside of time, which he brings about in time through Jesus. God didn't look down the corridor of heaven and see all the good boys and girls and say they're the ones I'm going to choose. That's not what God did. God chose to set his love and affection upon you and he chose to give you him his son before you even existed, before you ever messed up, before you did anything good, God had chosen to do that for you. It is all grace, and this is good news, because if I can't earn it, I freely receive it. Then on my worst day, I can't lose it. And therefore, the the, the Apostle Paul says, time and time again, we boast in God. And so there is this grace which saves us. There is uh, this power which sustains us. But then he goes on and says, there is this life with. Which fuels us. And so, verse ten, in which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. Listen to this: Who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So it was given before time to salvation, but manifest in time is what he's saying, right? And how does that happen? What did Christ do? Well, when he appeared, the way he made this manifest uh, in terms of God's purpose and grace was he abolished death. This is what it's looking like in real time. This is what it's looking like when it's being manifest, that Jesus came and he abolished death. This is part of the gospel, that Jesus died on a cross, but then he rose again to new life, and he broke the back of death. And this verb here, to abolish, doesn't mean to completely annihilate from time. Okay? So uh, we see that death still exists in this world. We, we, we see it, we, we feel it, uh, we all experience it. But it doesn't rain. It is no longer ultimate. It is powerless to do what it was supposed to do. So Paul speaks about death in one Corinthians fifteen fifty-five as a military commander. Oh, death, where is your victory? It doesn't exist because death is no longer victorious. It doesn't have the last say anymore. Or as a scorpion sting. Oh, death, where is your sting? So because Christ has abolished. Christ has broken the power of death. Death is no longer what fuels us. Death is no longer what drives our life. We no longer fear death. In fact, death is just a gateway to more life in Christ for those of us who are Christians. And so he abolished death, but then it says he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This idea of immortality just means incorruptibility. It's it's the picture of uh, when when Jesus died and he rose again to new life, he had a resurrected body. And he promised that when we die, he will give us new resurrected bodies. And those bodies will not experience anything to do with death. No decay, no disease, no pain, no struggle, no needing glasses, uh, no needing to shave. Um, these things are gone because... This is the counterpart. This is the thing that Jesus came to bring. He came not only to abolish death, but to bring life. And remember who's saying this? This is the Apostle Paul, who's at the end of his life, on trial, waiting any moment, any day to face his sentence of death. Yet he's filled with, with life. And this, this is so countercultural. Right, Because in a culture which is uh, predominated by a worldview of naturalism and materialism, even humanism, death is ultimate. In fact, all of life is lived in light of death because that is the end and that is all there is. And so in many ways, Christianity has this incredible message, which is beautiful, because there is more to life than death. So one of the ways this plays out is our culture lives for the moment. Because that's all there is, is the moment. And the Christian says, no, no, we don't live for the moment. We live in the moment, in light of the past, for the future. We live in the moment, in light of the past, for the future. Death is not the driving force. We do not live our lives in light of death. We're moving towards more and more life in Christ. And it is life that is driving us forward to kingdom ends. And Timothy needs Christ's life. And Timothy needs to be reminded that people in the culture, people around this church, need life. And life only comes through the gospel. So don't be ashamed of it. It's what brings life. This message of God, who comes and brings life, needs to be believed and be bold in. Church, we need Christ's life. If you're here with us and you're not a Christian, I implore you, you need Christ's life. He died for you and he rose again to give you eternal life, to set your spirit alive so that you can begin living now, loving Jesus, knowing Jesus, walking with Jesus, enjoying Jesus all the way to eternity. And death still exists, but it does not reign. so that when we die, all we do is get more Jesus. And this is why it is good news in church. We don't just need this. Our culture needs this. People around us who we work with need this. People who we study with need this. They need life and life eternal. So let us tell the world. Let us be bold. Let us be confident that we have good news to tell people. And it may even cause us to suffer, but it is worth it. So number one, be confident in the gospel. Number two is be faithful in the gospel. Uh, James Bechail uh, wrote this book called The Dying of the Light. And it's basically over 800 pages of research given to exploring Christian institutions over long periods of time, and how they started off as being these vibrant communities of faith and institutions of faith that over time started to drift away and eventually die. And he explores what the, the key elements are that lead to the drift and the eventual decline away from Christianity and Christian doctrine. Uh, and one of the things he says is that as, a, as an educational institution or even a church, as it grows and becomes larger and becomes more successful, what ends up happening is rather than Christian doctrine and Christian practice being primary, what becomes most important is competency. So now we need an administrative assistant or whatever. And so we're going to drop our standard of what we think needs to be Christian doctrine that should be held and Christian practice. Because at the end of the day, we need competency to help this organization continue to grow. And so what he does is he kind of follows these patterns that it's like a few degrees, and then it's a few degrees over a couple of years, a few more degrees over a couple of years. And then 10 years go by, 20 years go by, 30 years, 40, 50, 60, and all of a sudden this christian origin story of this institution or this church no longer exists because one degree after another we've moved away from doctrine and devotion practice beliefs and this is exactly what paul says here when he's encouraging timothy to be faithful he wants to say hey listen there are two parts to faithfulness there is the belief of the doctrines and there's the practice there's the great reformers. There's the doctrine and the devotion, the belief in God and the behaviour that follows those who believe God. And so, church, we we want to dig into this. We want to see this. But it, he says here, he says, verse thirteen: Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Listen to this: Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard it. Here's what he's saying. He is saying, you need to guard this thing called the gospel. You need to guard this thing which has been given. You need, it's been entrusted to you. Guard it. But look at what he says in 1 Timothy four, fourteen to 16 It's very, very similar. This is in his first letter to Timothy. It says, verse 14, Do not neglect the gift which you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching." Keep a close watch on your, yourself, your practice, your character, and your teaching, your doctrine, your beliefs. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So, this is this, this guarding, this, this is not a defensive language. This is growing your knowledge of God, growing your knowledge of doctrine. Get in the book, study the book, read the book, learn the book, learn more about God. And as you do that, make sure. Your character goes with that. You see in the church there are the kind of different camps. And sometimes there are these Bible camps who love the Bible and love doctrine. But sometimes these people who kind of hold up the book and hold up doctrine and, and want to get truth right, um, they're so low on grace, they're so low on love, they're so long on low on joy. And then on the other side you've got churches who are filled with enthusiasm, great with love and grace and mercy. But don't get too deep into the, into the doctrine stuff. You, know, you don't really need that. It gets in all the way. It's like, no, no, we, we want both. And in fact, if we get truth, it should be married with grace because that is what the Bible tells us about Jesus, that he is one who came in truth and grace. And so this is what he says. He says, grow in your knowledge of God and doctrine and grow in your applying of the gospel. Follow this pattern. Grow in your character. Church, how are we going with our study of the book? How much time are we making to read and learn about God? Because if we're going to be faithful in this thing called the gospel ministry and gospel mission, we've got to know God. As suffering comes, we must know God. As persecution comes, we've got to know God. And we don't want to drop this, and we need our character to match it. How are we going at being humble? The longer we walk with God, are we becoming more gracious, more patient, more loving, more kind? Let us be a church that is known for its love of the book and the word, and also a church which is known for its great character. of have been gracious, merciful, kind, gentle people who love like God loves. And So number one is to be confident in the gospel. Number two is to be faithful in the gospel. And number three is to partner in the gospel. So verse 15, he starts to talk about these, these people in Asia who has turned away from him. There's Philegius and Homogenes. These are, these are friends who began with him in mission and ministry work. Uh, and there's more than this. There's people all throughout Asia who are with him in mission, partnering with him in mission in this gospel. And now what he's saying is they're not just departing me, they're departing the gospel. And then they're ashamed of me and they're becoming ashamed of the true gospel. And then he goes on to speak about Onesiphorus, who is the opposite. And he puts these contrasts together. Onesiphorus is this guy who refreshed me, he's not ashamed of my chains, and he, he celebrates him. And if you look at the flow of this passage in verse 12, Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Um, and he says, I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me, verse 12. And then in verse 14, he's speaking to Timothy, he says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the uh, guard the good deposit entrusted to you so there is Paul who's been entrusted with it now he's passing it on to Timothy and it's being entrusted with it and i'm just going to touch base on on Shane's passage next week but chapter 2 verse 1 it says you then my child be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also do you see this picture do you see this pattern there's this partnership in the gospel Everybody needs a Paul. Everybody needs someone who is further along in the journey, pouring into us, teaching in this gospel, helping grow us in the gospel, entrusting then us with the gospel. And everybody needs a Timothy. That this thing needs to be passed on. This thing needs to go forward. Disciples making disciples. We all need a Paul, but we all need to be a Paul to a Timothy. Who are we entrusting with the good news? Who are we growing? Who are we pouring ourselves into so that this would move on? Don Carson says this. He says, One of the great responsibilities of any generation of Christian or Christian leader is to preserve the gospel, to glory in it, to teach it, to evangelize to establish believers and be willing to suffer for it precisely by mentoring a whole other generation coming along behind them who themselves will prove to be reliable. In other words, we all need to be passing the thing on so that we're not just preserving this thing for one generation then it dies out. This needs to go on to the next generation, to the next generation, to the next generation so that the kingdom of God continues to advance and this gospel continues to spread We don't want to be like politicians who are just trying to do what they need to do in this moment in order to get elected in this moment. And by making all of those decisions affecting future generations, we want to be people that live in the moment, in light of the past, for the future. And that means this gospel needs to advance and we need to partner with God. We need to partner with the church. We need to partner with each other in spreading the good news of Jesus to others and discipling others in the gospel. Question, who is your Paul? And who is your Timothy? And if you don't have one, find one. And let's pass this thing on together. So we are not ashamed of this gospel. Rather, we are confident in it, we are faithful with it, and we partner together with it because it is good news. Church, Love you, miss you, I'm gonna pray. Uh, If you're here with us and you're not a Christian, we'd love for you to let us know so that we can walk with you and help you maybe journey and this this journey of faith that we're all on and encourage you to become um, an explorer and journey with us. Uh, If you would love to receive Jesus today and respond in faith to him, please let us know. We'd love to follow you and share more about the good news of Jesus. But I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna read a benediction and then we'll be off. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others